Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bearded Things. This is a, a, a new show, and we're doing, we've done a couple of sample episodes. We're doing a full rollout tonight. We're going to try some features, see how they play along. You need to let us know. Uh, you can do that by reaching me. My name is Chris, by the way, at the Christopher Alton on Instagram. That's the best uh, place to find me. And with my broski. How's it going? My name is Tyler Wiggins. You can also find me on the Instagram at not the Christopher Alton, but it is at the Hamburglar. D-A-H-A-M-B-U-R-G-L-U-R. And that's a long one. It's but- a very long one. That's what she said. <laughs> hey, oh. So we're going to be doing a couple of things before we get into our show. Tyler, how have you been? What's going on? What's new? Tell me all about it. I have been good, um, you know, living the dream, living the uh, the retail manager life here in uh, COVID-19, crazy pandemic world, um, waiting to see if the governor in California is going to shut us down, if we're going to stay open, uh, kicking people out of my store left and right because they're not wearing masks. If you're out there, please wear a mask in public. You're just trying to save us. Yeah, don't be a mask hole. Just put the stupid thing on. Yeah, it's, it's not hard. I wear, you know, eight to 10, 10 hours a day. Like, please just wear it. Like, it's really not that hard. If you're coming in, you're gonna, you know, you're going to be in the store for five, 10 minutes, you're going to go outside, you're going to run to McDonald's, to Carl's Jr., uh, wherever you're going, just wear a mask. It's just, you know, help us out, please. Try to stop this pandemic. You know, some of us would like to be able to go outside and enjoy public again at some point in our lifetimes. What is public? (laughs) It's this mythical thing that we used to have it back in the day where you could go outside and you could be next to your friends, you could drink, you could have fun. And now it's all gone. We have to wear masks. We have to stay six feet away from each other. It just, you know, it was better times. <laughs> yeah. And uh, on my, my neck of the world, I am an out-of-work actor, so nothing has changed at all for me. This is completely normal. So welcome. If you ever had that dream of, like, chasing Hollywood or whatever, this is pretty much all that it is. Once in a while, you go out because somebody wants to judge you, and then, and then that's it. So, Yeah. You're technically all actors now, too. Congratulations. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, we have a couple of topics tonight. Um, One thing that we're doing, and I think this is actually be kind of fun for everybody, is we don't actually know what each other is going to be covering tonight. Surprise! (laughs) So, without getting into too much detail, mine has to do with a particular event in American history. Wow, that's very specific, Chris. Thank you. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, do you want to give any teasers? You just want to jump into it. No, that's fine. Uh, do you want me to tease mine? If you'd like. I mean, do you want to go first? If you go first, I don't think you should tease because we're just jumping in. But I like to tease. All right, tease. Let it go. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, if I'm going first, it doesn't matter. But uh, I can give a slight tease. Mine is a very specific person that happened in American history. There's been like 6 billion people in the United States. So this will be good. No, it's a specific one though. Think about it. So it's one of the 6 billion. One of the 6 billion that <laughs> cover the United States. That's awesome. All right. Uh, so do you want to go first? No, yeah, I don't mind. Yeah. I don't right. mind the coin toss. Go for the it. Imaginary pandemic coin toss here. So <laughs> uh, hello, lovely viewers or listeners. We're not on a visual medium. We're an audio medium. Come on, Tyler, get it together. So I'm going to cover something that's kind of been sort of in the news recently. It was something that came out about five years ago, and now it's really popular because Disney Plus just released the musical Hamilton on Disney, or Disney released the music Hamilton on Disney Plus. I'm good at speaking, people. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So kind of, it's really cool. You know, uh, if you haven't seen the movie or you haven't gone to the play it's the story of alexander hamilton told in a little bit of creative licensing from lin-manuel miranda who is amazing he's a a jerk i hate how much i love that guy i was like i will fight you right now (laughs) (laughs) i love everything he's done uh you know he composes music he's done stuff for like moana and different movies and stuff like that um he starred in a couple you know there's a tv show i think it was on showtime or star or something he was the main character on he's amazing so he took some creative licensing, uh, based it on, you know, the bio- biography by Ron Chernow, who did the bio- biographical novel for Hamilton. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Chris, I think you went and saw it in person, correct? Uh, yeah, I saw the OBC, the original Broadway cast of Hamilton, mm-hmm. forever ago. 
<laughs> but it's, it is really good. And uh, I mean, everything's on hold right now. But if you get a chance to go see the touring company, you need to go do it. It's amazing. Yeah, I was never fortunate enough to go and watch it because I couldn't afford tickets. So I was on the super late train and I only got to experience Hamilton. Excuse the motorcycle that's driving in the background. There's always a motorcycle. <laughs> always a motorcycle. Every podcast has to have a motorcycle driving <laughs> in the background. Um, so I wasn't able to see the show live, but I did get to watch it on Disney Plus, And I probably watched it three or four times now because it's amazing. And, you know, I'm a pretty big history buff. Um, if I went back to school and wanted to get a degree in something different, I would go with history because I feel like history is just something I really love. And Alexander Hamilton was always kind of someone that I really enjoyed reading about because he's got a fascinating story. Um, I won't go into his, you know, crazy childhood and all that stuff, but suffice to say the musical did a good job of explaining things. But like I said, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda took a lot of creative licensing with that. And so I kind of want to cover a little bit of the historical differences, you know, fact versus fiction or fact versus Hollywood, however you want to call it. And then kind of get into really, you know, like digging a little bit into the duel with Aaron Burr. Um, so are you going to do this via spoken word or, I mean, are you going to sing it? I wish I had the pipes to sing it. I would try, um, but I'm not. So yeah, <laughs> I, I can sit here and snap. I can put on a jazz beret and wear some sunglasses and, <laughs> try to do some spoken word but i'm just gonna read because i just i'm not that creative gotcha <laughs> um so that being said um i'm gonna get into my story here um kind of the, the first thing that kind of jumped out at me when i first watched the the movie the play however you want to phrase it was how much he really pined for like the success and he wanted that action when he was, you know, under Washington, when he was, you know, working for Washington and he was kind of a glorified secretary in that role. And, you know, like in the play, he pined for that success, but before that, you know, he actually commanded troops before Yorktown, you know, so he did a really good, you know, he was a a pretty successful military. He was a captain in the, the revolutionary army and, um, he saw action prior to the Yorktown, Yorktown being the big battle in the, the first act of the play. And so before that, he was actually really pivotal. I don't know if, if you, Chris, you're familiar or anyone that's listening to failure. I'm sure most people have heard about Washington's crossing of the Delaware, right? Yes. Uh, that's the, uh, the painting as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. The painting where Washington is up on the, on the, the top of the boat and they're rowing across in the middle of the night on Christmas day. Well, Hamilton was actually really sick on Christmas day and they're like, he's not going to make it. Like, we'll just go without him. But he was able to kind of recover. And he's like, you know what? I'm getting on the boat. I'm crossing the Delaware with Washington. Like this is going to be epic. Um, so he crossed the river. He, he did the whole you know thing. He arrived in Trenton. He commanded, you know, he was uh, in charge of an artil- artillery battalion. And as soon as they got to Trenton, the British and the Hessians were firing on them and they were just like rocking their shit. Like they were destroying everything. So Hamilton was like, you know what? Like F this let's go like let's stop this and so he took his his battalion of artillery he pushed them into the snow and just started firing on them and he just he he fucked their shit up so he, um, he went like full rambo essentially with artillery you know like with grape shot and like like cannonballs he just started like firing and there's there's a, a couple different like accounts of it it varies because it's you know the 1700s not everyone had you know twitter back then to tell us exactly what's going on but um you know, like there was like British and Hessian troops that were trying to get like out of their tents and like the barracks that they had set up and just like walk out and just like cannonballs like in the face, in the chest and just getting like rocked by these cannonballs. So Hamilton was kind of a badass. Um, and then after that, you know, like the couple of days later, they had the Battle of Princeton and he was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and he was made one of Washington's aide de camps. He was him and two other people were the aide de camps. One of them was John Lorenz, who we, we heard about in the play as well. And the other one was a person by the name of Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roche-Gilbert de Mottier, also known as Marquis de Lafayette. He's French. He has like 18 last names. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so this is actually where those three men became friends. They didn't know each other prior to the Revolutionary War. They didn't meet in a bar and sing and talk about, you know, they'll tell our story for the rest of the night. This is kind of where they met and they began friends. So the Battle of Yorktown in the play Hamilton's a badass, right? Like, this is where he turns the tide of the battle and they do well, and all of a sudden, Hamilton's like a superhero. In real life, it's actually cooler than the play kind of made it seem. Like, the play, they're sneaking around. They did kind of lead like a little bit of a night charge, but in reality, what they did is they have, there were these two things called redoubts. There's redoubt 10 and redoubt 9. 
Redoubt 9 was handled by the French. Redoubt 10, a redoubt is basically a giant uh, defensive structure that was set up by the British. And Washington's like, yo, go take that. Like, we need it. So Hamilton's like, bet, I'm on it. Let's go. So Hamilton took his, his men. They stormed this thing. And they're getting, like, pelted by artillery from the British. The Just, you know, regular rifle fire. They're, they run up. And basically, they're at the bottom of this, like, hill, basically. You know, like a small hill. They're at the bottom. They're just getting shot. And Hamilton's like, you know what? Like, we're going to die if we stay here. So he stands up in the middle of this battle. And he's like, man, like, follow me. Kind of like the whole, you know, the charge library, like, come with me, you know, like. So he stands up. He jumps over these, like, barricades. He runs through. He stabs a dude, starts shooting everyone. His men follow him. And they charge. And they take over this redoubt. And they only lose eight men. So they kill, you know, hundreds of British soldiers. Hamilton kind of, like, gets his whole, you know, military honors. And Washington's like, you're the man. Thank you. Like, if it wasn't for this. And that's kind of where the battle turns. And the U.S. or the American soldiers end up, you know, kind of turning the tide of the revolution. So in the, the play, he's kind of like this, oh, I want to be a soldier. I want to be a soldier. And he finally gets this shot. In reality, he was kind of a badass soldier. And he did really well. So you could say he didn't throw away his shot? He did not. And I'm actually getting to that. Thank you for bringing that up. Because that's a, a huge point in the, um, the play. And I really like it. So thank you for, you know, spoiling my script two pages later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know the kind of cool thing is the whole thing with like the Schuyler sisters with Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. Um, Eliza being his future wife. Angelica being uh, Eliza's sister. They have a really flirtatious relationship. They meet and like initially it's Alexander and, uh, you know, uh, Angelica where they're like, ooh, like I love you. You're so cute. Uh, in reality, Angelica was already married. She had two kids. Um, but when she met Hamilton. So she was already going back and forth between London. Um, there was no, you know, crazy ball scene where they're fighting over each other. Um, they did have a very flirtatious relationship that was evidenced by some of the uh, letters that they would send back and forth. They would kind of like joke around with each other's grammar. Like, you know, he, he would kind of like comment on how she's really bad at grammar. And so she would try to fix it. Um, so they had this kind of a weird, sarcastic, flirtatious relationship. Kind um, of a jerk, but she yeah, it. kind of a dick, but she was into it. You know what I mean? I guess he was, he was kind of playing like the bad boy. Um, and it was actually Angelica. If you know, in the play, there's a scene where she they, they sing about like when he writes her letter, it wrote like you know, dearest, comma Angelica. And in reality, it was reversed. You know, she wrote the the letter to you know Alexander, writing dearest, comma Alexander, and he was like, hey, your 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 grammar sucks. Like you put the comma in the wrong spot. And she's like, no, no, no. It was on purpose. <laughs> um, so he's also kind of dense when it yeah, comes to the ladies. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and the last bit on the Skyler sisters, Philip Skyler, their their father, he had like 15 kids. Like it wasn't up to the women to find men. There was plenty of men that lived in the family. There, he had sons that grew up to be adults. So like she wasn't as like needy as she needed to be, but I digress. Um, she still killed it. Did amazing with the song. Um, the big thing, the big kind of, controversy in Hamilton's life was the Reynolds affair and all the stuff Reynolds right. affair. Yeah. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> um, again, creative licensing from Miranda's point of view. I totally dug it. The way they told the story was great with like Madison and Jefferson, and everything in reality, Madison wasn't involved. Jefferson wasn't involved until later. Burr wasn't involved. Uh, it was actually James Monroe, the future president. It was kind of like, yo, who's this guy like sleeping around with these women? Like he's the secretary of treasury. Like this isn't cool. So Monroe and two of the senators get together. They find out about it. They, they corner Hamilton. They try to bribe him. And Hamilton's like, no, like, you're not going to bribe me. I don't care, you know? Um, and then he, Monroe leaks all the papers to Jefferson. Jefferson starts publishing it just like in a play. And then Hamilton found out and he starts calling Monroe, like, all these, like, terrible things in the newspaper. They get, everything just short of calling him a liar. Because calling someone a liar in the 1700s was like, uh, uh-uh, like we're fighting, like we're throwing, you know, like we're gonna throw hands, like that's like the ultimate insult. Yeah, it's like you're a liar, uh, uh-uh, uh, like we're, you know. But Monroe got tired of like Hamilton calling him like a dog and like you know someone who's just trying to like usurp his power. And Monroe calls Hamilton a scoundrel and he challenges him to a duel. And ironically, the person that intervened and stopped the duel was Aaron Burr. He's like, hey, 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 like duels aren't cool. Like you guys need to chill. Um, so then Hamilton wrote a 95 page paper called observations on circuit documents, certain documents, which later became known as the Reynolds pamphlet. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to write almost hundred pages on why I cheated on my wife and why it's okay. Um, I'm his sure wife, his wife loved it. <laughs> that's the best part. His wife, Eliza didn't really even get mad at Hamilton. She got mad at Monroe for publishing it. She's like, <laughs> yo, like politicians are going to philander. Like, why are you going to call my husband out on it? 
Um, and the whole scene in the play where she's like, I'm going to burn all my letters. I don't want to step out of the narrative. That actually happened. But it happened about three years prior to the Reynolds affair because she didn't want to be known as a historical figure. She didn't want people to remember her. She didn't. She saw the burden that Martha Washington had and like the, the, the struggle she went through by being like a woman in the limelight and all this stuff. And she's like, I don't want that. Like, I'm going to step out, like, get out of here. So she actually burned all the papers. She got rid of all the letters and stuff that she said because she didn't want people to know like what her and Alexander were doing. So that was kind of that, that kind of a cool piece there. Um, Moving on, there's a cool scene in the movie when John Adams gets elected president, and there's the cool little side part where King George sings a song about John Adams being a little man and how America <laughs> was screwed. Uh, which, by the way, by far our favorite character in the play. Is oh, he killed King it. George. Yeah. He's amazing. And uh, from what I hear in the London version of the play, uh, they love it, it, which is crazy because it's in the, I, I'm going to get it all wrong, and I'm sorry for all the history buffs out there. I believe it's like the Queen Victorian Theater which Probably. is yeah like uh king george's granddaughter and prince had harry harry and william's great great grandmother mm. and the king comes out and he does his whole spiel and it's you know direct lineage you know yeah, yeah. but they eat it up they absolutely love the king there yeah there's a cool um i saw a thing with I think it's the Graham Norton show out in London or out yes. in Britain. Like the That's big... like their Tonight Show kind of a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Lin Manuel Miranda, Lin Manuel Miranda was on. And he was talking about that when he went and saw it. He was standing next to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And he's like, <laughs> This is their like six time great grandfather that I'm like dissing right here. And it's like, I was terrified. But it's like they were laughing their ass off. And like people understood that, you know, King George III became Mad King George. And so like he was kind of known to be like that, but he was really scared. So it's really cool like how they painted that. Totally. Um, so there's a scene where Adams becomes president. He fires Hamilton and Hamilton calls him a fat piece of shit. Um, Ham Adams never fired Hamilton. Hamilton, um, he resigned from politics after that. Uh, kind of a cool story, though, is Hamilton wanted Washington to stay president for the rest of his life. He's like, no, 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 like, you're cool. Just be president. Like, I want to be secretary of the treasury the rest of our lives. Like, let's just do that. And then Washington was like, no, nah, I'm cool. Um, probably the biggest thing that comes up with the play is everyone talking about the perception of most of the men in their and their stances on slavery um mo you know in the play all the men are pretty staunchly opposed to slavery um in reality they generally just didn't care they were just kind of like no nah, i don't like slavery i don't really want this in the beginning they were kind of just like ah, i'm good you know it doesn't really affect us the only person that was really devout was like, no, 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 was John Lorenz. And that was, you know, played really well in the, the play where, you know, he really wanted to raise an army of freed black men and he wanted to get his 3,000 men and he wanted to do all this. And tragically, he was killed after the war was over, you know, like one of the last skirmishes in the war. Um, but Alexander Hamilton, he had family members who were slave owners. You know, his mother-in-law was a slave owner. Slave owner. Um, he had extended family that were slave owners. And as a lawyer prior to the Revolutionary War, um, Hamilton assisted in, you know, the transaction of his friends and family, like purchasing slaves and making sure everything was legit, like, you know, and was legally sound. But by the time the Revolutionary War broke out, he did kind of start to see, you know, hey, this is kind of wrong. And some more of the abolitionist, you know, feelings and actions of his started coming out. You know, he tried to recruit black soldiers and promising them their freedom to work for, you know, the, the revolutionary, you know, like in the war and like work for America and like, Hey, you know, if you can fight for us, like we'll, we'll guarantee your freedom. So he really tried to step that up towards the end of the, the war. And then post-war um, he really was strongly opposed to Southern interest with slavery and kind of where they were looking at. Um, there's the cool sort of like the rap battle when him and Jefferson are, are kind of like battling back and forth. And he's talking about, you know, like we know where like your labor comes from and who's planting the seeds. Um, he was really opposed to that and he saw the hypocrisy between we just fought this war for our independence yet we still have all these people that are not free um, and the other men featured prominently in the play you know like Washington Jefferson Adams Aaron Burr they all owned slaves um, the cool little side bit I don't know if you heard this where I forget the, the guy's name the actor who played George Washington wanted to have like a little bit of like you know like a, a nod to Washington having slaves and like at the end when Eliza's giving her spiel about you know we'll be remembered by our actions he kind of hangs his head because he's like hey you know we weren't able to address this but it's kind of cool how he takes that little stance like yeah that was a uh, Chris Jackson there we go yes 
a phenomenal as George Washington. Oh, I love it. Yeah, their their casting was fantastic. Like, you know, yeah, like he did he killed it as Washington. David Diggs killed it as Lafayette, Lafayette. and Jefferson. Like I I loved like it's so amazing. So yeah, it sounds like uh, Hamilton's perspective back then in the midst of it, in the midst of, you know, today it's very controversial with the founding fathers owning slaves. And, and exactly. it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Hamilton and a few others were very progressive in yep. use towards it back then, which would have been insane by today's standards. Oh yeah. By today's standards, they're the most liberal, you know, like the people like, you know, they're going to, people are going to lose their shit with this but yeah they they were extremely progressive and extremely forward-thinking to be like you know like hey like this isn't right to hold on to the person's property and you know they, they tried really hard to make sure they could try to overturn some of that stuff in the capacity they had because unfortunately you know the declaration of penance say you know all men are created equal well they weren't or you know they may be created equal but they're not held equally so they tried to do their part um and now moving on, we'll get into the meat and potato meat and potatoes of this, and that's Mr. Aaron Burr versus Alexander Hamilton. Dun dun dun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in this story, you know, in the play, you see the whole, you know, like the first act, it's you know, like, are you Aaron Burr, sir? Um, they didn't meet in New York, they didn't meet that early on. Um, they actually didn't really start to they kind of had an idea. They they we're both in, you know, the military. They both served under Washington in this, in a little bit of a capacity, uh, not as directly as Hamilton served under Washington, but Burr still saw some action. Um, so they're both in the military. They were had an idea of who they were, but they didn't really know each other until shortly after Burr won the New York Senate seat from Hamilton's father-in-law. You know, like it did happen in the play where the kid's like, that's, you know, that's grandpa's seat, you know. Um, that did happen. Aaron Burr won the, the, the New York Senate seat and that's when they kind of developed a rivalry because Hamilton didn't really take too kindly to Burr ousting his father-in-law. In 1900, Burr ran for president. Um, and kind of the way it worked is everyone ran for president under their party affiliation. So Jefferson and, and there Burr. Were like four or five parties at that time, right? Yeah, they had tons. Yeah, they, they, we didn't have the Republicans and the Democrats. You know, there were Democratic Republicans. They were Federalists. Um, they the were Whig Party. The Whig Party came in a little bit. Yeah. So like, you know, Jefferson and Burr were both Democratic Republicans and John Adams was running under the Federalist Party. Um, John Adams was up for re-election. And this is when kind of, you know, they, they touch on it a little bit in the play where when they, they touched on the part where Hamilton calls him a fat piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, oh, he took care of Adams. Kind of what happened, not really. Uh, basically, Hamilton was like, hey, you know, this guy doesn't really represent our federalist ideals. And so it really fell to Aaron Burr and Jefferson for the seat of president. Um, And there was actually an agreement between the electors where 73 of them were going to vote for Jefferson and 72 of them were going to vote for Aaron Burr. Well, someone screwed up and they both voted and they, they got tied. So there was no majority winner. Someone voted for Burr instead of voting for John Adams. So it was 73 and 73. They were tied. So just like today, if there's a tie in the electoral college, it goes to the House of Representatives. And then they fight, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they duel on the House floor. Uh, it's like AOC calling out that one guy that called her. Yo-ho! <laughs> <laughs> um, so it got to the House of Representatives, and that's Alexander's territory. You know, He's like, I'm an orator. I'm going to bury this dude. And he basically you know, was talking about why you know, I can swing some votes here. And it you know, basically made it so Jefferson was going to win the presidency. And Aaron Burr still became vice president because back in the day, number one was president, number two was vice president. Which, side note, can you imagine if Fuckface was president and Hillary Clinton was vice president? Like, could you imagine, <laughs> like, the shit that would go down? Like, I would pay so much to watch that just to see them argue. I would vote for that. That would get me out there to vote. That's amazing. I'm pretty sure our country would still be doomed, but it would be amazing <laughs> television for those four months before, you know, Armageddon hit. Anyway, back, back to the, the story here. Um, so in the play, this is kind of what sets off the duel is they say like, you know, you cost me the presidency. Like, I hate you. I'm going to challenge you. And that That's was in really- the, yeah, in the play, that was the, the whole thing of, uh, if you don't stand for anything, what will you fall for? Exactly. Yeah. That was kind of like the crescendo, the leading up to that. And that's kind of where it happened. Um, in reality, it was about four years later where this happened. Um, prior to, um, like, so basically 
Burr becomes vice president. He he runs out most of his term. Towards the end of his term in 1804, he's like, hey, you know, I'm not going to reelect. I'm not going to re-up as vice president. Jefferson's going to go for another four years as president. They want someone else. So he's going to step down, and he's looking to run for governor of New York. Um, prior to that election in 1804, Hamilton attended a dinner with a doctor named Charles Cooper. Um, Charles Cooper was a good friend of his father-in-law, and they got talking. And at the dinner, Hamilton made some comments regarding the Federalist Party's decision to go with Aaron Burr for the nomination for New York governor. I said earlier, Jefferson and Burr were both Democratic Republicans. When he left the vice presidency seat, they're like, hey, you want to come over to the Federalist side? And Burr's like, yo, let's do this. Um, so Dr. Cooper, after the dinner, wrote a letter to Hamilton's father-in-law regarding his comments, claiming that the letter was very tame. He basically said like, you know, hey, Hamilton's talking shit about this dude. But the letter was tame compared to the comments in which Hamilton expressed a quote, still more despicable opinion, end quote, of Burr during the dinner. So he's like, hey, he said a lot of stuff. I'm going to tell you like the easy stuff, but there's a lot worse. Burr went on to lose the election. And then Hamilton's father-in-law published the, the letter that Dr. Cooper sent him in the Albany, Reg Albany Register. Aaron Burr saw it and he demanded an apology from Hamilton. He wrote him a letter and he's like, hey, I need to know if Dr. Cooper's claims that there was, quote, more despicable opinions if that was true, like, what, what, did, what did you say? Hamilton said, he wrote him a letter back and he's like, I can't, be I can't be held accountable for the interpretation of Dr. Cooper's words, but if he did interpret it a bad way, I don't blame him. Basically saying like, <laughs> hey, you like know, shots like- Shots fired. Yeah, he's kind of like, hey, like, I don't know if he took it the wrong way, he took it the wrong way, but I don't blame him because, you know, you're kind of an asshole. Um, <laughs> so this is pretty much like the first Twitter feud. Honestly, it's exactly what it is. It's like an online, like, you know, like, let's have a dick measuring contest, but we're going to write, you know, 12,000 letters in a letter or 12,000 words in a letter and see what we can say. So Burr got mad. He wrote another letter asking for Hamilton to confirm or deny if more had been said to Dr. Cooper. And Hamilton responded by saying that he had, quote, no other answer to give other than that which had already been given. So basically, like, I said what I said. I'm not going to tell you anything more. Um, he wanted Burr to like specifically challenge him on what he said. And Hamilton's like, you know, I'm not going to give you a detailed response if you don't tell me anything. So eventually Burr's like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to issue a former challenge to Hamilton. And Hamilton's like, all right, I got this. Like, let's duel. Um, previous to this, Hamilton had really refused to participate in the duel as a principal dueler. So that's the person that's actually like firing, you know, he had been someone's second. The second is who, you know, like they make sure the paces are right. They try to negotiate peace. There's the whole bit in the, the movie or in the play where they're counting off the 10 different rules of dueling. Yeah, the 10 is, steps, I think it's called or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, which is actually really accurate. A lot of stuff that I've seen from historians are like, I'm using that when we cover dueling in like history. It's like, because they really go into depth and in real like detail on what the seconds do and kind of what their jobs are. Um, so Hamilton's never been the, the principal dueler, but he's done a lot of seconds. He was in there with Charles Lee, the whole thing when, you know, um, John Lorenz shot Charles Lee after they were bad-mouthing Washington in the play, and then he gets kicked out of the army. Yes. Which never really happened. He didn't kick him out. He just got really mad at him. Washington's like, don't do that again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he didn't really want to participate, mainly because he's like, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, and I owe a lot of people money. If I die, my family's going to go bankrupt. So he's like, I don't want to do this. But Hamilton was also like, hey, I can't refuse this because I've been bad-mouthing this dude all you know like the last couple of months like i've been telling him how bad of a person he is and he's like i can't recant that stuff because burr is acting the way he is basically he's like i'm not gonna take it back because burr is being a little bitch about it so there you know burr is like we're gonna fight let's duel you know in a week so hamilton spent the intervening time between the challenge and the duel to settle his debts um you know and he kind of supposedly reconciled his religious beliefs you know he was always kind of a pseudo christian he believed in christianity um, but towards the end of his life, he really kind of got into an Episcopalian view. And so he really kind of brought up this whole like Episcopalian thing. And so he wrote a letter entitled Statement on the Impending Duel with Aaron Burr, in which he wrote he intended to throw away his shot in accordance with his moral and religious beliefs. So it's kind of funny that you were talking about throwing away his shot because that was kind of his plan. You know, he spent his whole play talking about how he's not going to throw away his shot. They'd be like, yeah, I'm going to throw away my shot. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, it's, just, it's just really crazy where, you know, it's, uh, it, there's like a lot of little things in the story of Hamilton that kind of lead towards this ending. Yeah. You know, like the, the machine started and, and there was no turning back and it, all things led to this. And uh, he did throw away his shot. Yes. 
And so on the fateful morning in July 11th, 1804, Hamilton and Burr met in a field in Weehawken, New Jersey. It's just outside New York, just across the river. Um, dueling is illegal in both the state of New Jersey and the state of New York, but they agree that because New Jersey prosecutes murder more leniently than New York, they would do the duel in New Jersey. I feel like that's kind of similar. New Jersey gets away with a lot of shit where New York, they're like, nah, we're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, even today, they can do a yeah. lot in New Jersey. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then coincidentally, they did mention this in the play. It's also in the same, it's not the exact same field, but it's a similar area in Weehawken where Hamilton's son Philip was killed in a duel just three years prior to that. That's insane. Um, so per the dueling, you know, we talked about the 10 steps. The seconds got together. They did all, they tried to negotiate. Nothing worked. So they drew the lots out of the hat. So basically they say, you know, we're going to pick out of the hat. Whoever wins gets to choose like what side, if they want to be on the right, the left, north, south, Howard, they, they get to pick where they want to stand. And the other person takes their 10 paces from that. Hamilton won the draw, but he cho- chose the north side of the field, which faced the river, right? The sun's coming up, the river's behind Burr. And so he's going to be staring into a glare. Um, most historians agree that it was an odd choice because Hamilton was a renowned military man. He was known for his marksmanship. And the fact that he'd be facing the water and having all this glare in his eyes, it doesn't make sense. And which also leads them to believe that that's, he did that purposely because he was already planning on throwing away his shot. So they, 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 they're getting ready to square up. Hamilton's like, whoa, 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 time out. Like, I need to put my glasses on. There's a glare. I can't see. Right. And again, they touch on this in the play where he's like, Hamilton's wearing his glasses. Like he's a marksman. Hamilton put on his glasses. He then recited his gun. He checked to make sure everything was working and he could see everything. And this is where the speculation comes in, where historians think that Burr took this as a sign that Hamilton wanted to kill him because he was trying to take these extra steps. He's going to look at it and say, hey, why else is he going to do all this stuff unless he wanted to murder me? Um, So now the shot, right? We don't really know exactly what happened because per the rules, the seconds turn their backs. They can't actually see what's happening because they see what's happening. They're an accessory to murder. You know, they're, they're, they're watching someone be murdered. They're not stopping it. They can be convicted of it. So to protect that, the seconds turn their back. They don't look to see what happened. Um, all the first-hand accounts do agree that there were two shots fired. We know that one shot hit the trees above the head of Aaron Burr and broke some of the branches above his head, and the other one hit Alexander Hamilton in the ribs. Historians believe that Hamilton did indeed throw away his shot by wasting it and shooting it up in the air above Aaron Burr. The only, the weird thing about that is if Hamilton did intend to throw away his shot in such a way, tradition dictates that he should have shot into the ground. Basically, like, I'm not going to shoot you. I'm going to shoot the ground. This would signal to Burr that he doesn't intend any harm. He understands he was in the wrong and he's conceding his point. And Burr could have, would have taken that as his dispute being settled. But since Hamilton shot in the air, Burr was then justifiably able to turn around and say, hey, he shot at me. I'm going to shoot him back. So therefore, if he hit him, he could say like, I was justified in shooting him because he tried to kill me. See, that's the crazy part for me, right? So <clears throat> you, t- you take your paces, you turn and face each other, but right when you turn and face each other is when you shoot, right? So that's, that's the other thing. Histor- like Hollywood kind of skews that a little bit. Um, the other, one of the other practices there's is like you can, the old West. So like in the 18, 1800s, is when they did the, the turn and paces, turn and fire. The problem is that some people had shorter steps, some people had longer steps. There was no fair, quote unquote, fair way to look at this and say, okay, how do we do this? What they would do is someone would either drop like a handkerchief or one of the seconds would count one, two, three, fire. Um, so they believe that they kind of just agreed, you know, like they're like, okay, you know, because none of the seconds said we didn't drop anything, we didn't do anything. We, they turned their 10 paces, they were staring at each other. We turned our backs. We heard two gunfire, two gunshots fire. So no one really knows who shot first, what happened. Again, they believe that Hamilton shot above Burr and then Burr responded in kind. Gotcha. Cause it just seems very uh, split second to, you know, to register that your opponent is shooting at the ground. Exactly. Yeah. It's very difficult. And that's kind of, there's some stuff, if you look into like the rule, there's like a whole guideline you can find online on how to duel or like how the duels used to happen. And there's some people that say you would have, you, you know, cause you, each, each carrying case, you'd carry two pistols, right? You have one shot in each. And the thought was you, everyone in the beginning would shoot the ground the first time. And that was just let everyone know that they were ready. And they would take their second pistol and then they would start the shooting. 
Um, but there's really no like clear cut, like, okay, this is what happens because until the, the, you know, the invention of gunpowder, everyone did dueling by swords. You know, they would sword play. That's how they would, you know, they would, they would do their duels. So there wasn't really a necessarily like cut in stone. This is how we duel with pistols. And so everyone kind of had their own way of doing it. Um, and we just don't know because the seconds, they just refused to talk about it after this. Um, so after the shots were fired, Hamilton collapses almost immediately. Um, the, bill, the bullet is bleed to hit him in like his third rib and it shattered the rib. It went through, it lacerated his liver. It cut through his diaphragm. He had lots of internal, internal bleeding, a lot of organ damage. When Burr shot him, like Aaron Burr registered the shot, right? And he saw that he hit him. He actually tried to run over and like check on Hamilton. But his second was like, no, 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 like we got to get out of here. Like, you know, this is not legal. You know, like people know that this is an area known for dueling. So whenever they hear shots fire, like people come out to investigate, like we can't be here when we're seen. Um, so his second rushes him into the boat. Hamilton's carried away by his second and the, the a physician he had waiting for him in the boat. They're taken across the river to a family friend and the physician attends to him. Um, his wife, Eliza, and all their children are able to come see Hamilton. During the play, it looks like, you know, they, they separate after Philip dies and all this stuff. In reality, Eliza's been with him the whole time. She understands, like, everything that happened. They're still together. They love each other. Everything's great. So Eliza shows up with her children. They're able to see Hamilton. He's, he remains conscious in and out um, for most of the day. At times, he re he'll come out of unconsciousness, and he'll check with the doctor, and he's like, hey, is my bullet still loaded? Like, I didn't fire my gun. Like, it's, make sure the bullet's still there. I want people to know the bullet's still there. And they'd be like, like, no, like Alexander, like it's shot, like, you know, it's gone. Um, this is another thing that historians kind of, there's a, there's a, a couple of historians and a biographer who actually wrote a book that says he believes Aaron Burr shot first and he shot Hamilton. And then as Hamilton, because the bullet, you know, punctured his liver, his diaphragm, and it ended up lodging in the lumbar vertebrae, they think that he became, you know, he got paralyzed and as he was falling, he shot. And that's what shot over the tree. So there's a, it's a, it's a kind of conflicting stories here. But then with, with these things where he's talking to the, the doctor, where he's regaining consciousness, people think that he would never intended to fire and that it was an involuntary shot that came out of his gun. It just the, literally a jerk reaction from the exactly. impact and the damage. Ex exactly. Um, unfortunately, it's one of those things we'll never know. Um, Hamilton did go on. So this, the duel started, it was about 7, 7 a.m. on July 11th. He made it until 2 p.m. on July 12th when he passed away. He was surrounded by his family and friends. Um, just like in the play, Eliza did like almost immediately went into like protection mode. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to preserve Alexander's legacy. I want people to know he was a good man. He wasn't this person that just kind of flandered around and ended up getting killed. So she started cataloging all of his letters and papers. She settled all of his debts. She sold their family home. She settled everything. They were able to be, you know, not super wealthy, but they were able to live, you know, they had like nine children. They were able to live comfortably for the rest of her life. You know, she was instrumental in having Congress publish all of Hamilton's letters and kind of making it a national thing. Um, they published all 51 of his Federalist Papers. And just like in the play, she started an orphanage in New York. It's still in operation to this day. Um, and she lived to be 97 years old, which in the 17, 1800s is amazing. Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, she died in 1854. She outlived Alexander Hamilton by 50 years. Um, Mr. Burr was charged with murder in both New York and New Jersey, but in both states, the charges were dropped because, let's face it, he's the vice president of the United States. Uh, if Dick Cheney can shoot someone in the face and get away with it, I'm pretty sure this guy could get away with murdering someone in the 1700s. Uh, he returned to his role as vice president. You know, hey, Thomas, how's it going? Like, you know, another day in the life of the vice president. Uh, he started the remainder of his term. When he left, he kind of started moving out west. He wanted to look into like getting some land and, you know, buying up some land and selling it out, you know. Um, and he decided that when Thomas Jefferson purchased a bunch of land with the Louisiana Purchase, he's like, you know what, this seems like a, a good place for a new country. So he picked a couple of military men and he's like, let's start a new independent empire in the United States. Problem is, the two people he picked were chicken shits, and they're like, nah, fuck this, like, we're not doing it. So they ratted him out to Jefferson. So Jefferson arrested him, and they tried him for treason. He wasn't convicted <laughs> because he was a former vice president, but Thomas Jefferson was like, yo, like, you can't ever work in politics again, like, you're done. Uh, his re reputation would never be the same, and he would kind of live out his life in relative obscurity until his death in 1836. Um, 
A little quick side note on Aaron Burr. Prior to his death, he married a woman named Eliza Jamel. Eliza Jamel was a former prostitute who married a man, well, common law married a man. He died. She inherited some money. She rose to even more significant wealth. She married a very wealthy merchant who traveled between the United States and London and France. He died. So she inherited all of his money. So she's like, hey, I'm really wealthy. I'm going to marry this man, Aaron Burr, who's 77 years old and has got, you know, equivalent to today's millions of dollars. So she married a 77-year-old former politician. But, you know, Aaron Burr didn't really make the best choices. And so all of his land that he had bought up was being sucked dry because, you know, there's really no one out there to be working in the West. So after four months, she's like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to divorce this man. So she filed for divorce four months after getting married. The day she filed for, for divorce, Burr suffered a stroke and was rendered immobile. The divorce, and then so he was immobile for the rest of his life. The divorce was officially finalized on September 14th, 1836. You know what happened on September 14th, 1836? September 14th, uh, Aaron Burr died? Exactly. <laughs> his divorce finalized, he kicked the bucket. And who was the lawyer who handled the divorce papers, you might add, and the proceedings that Eliza which is also Alexander Hamilton's wife name. So kind of weird, right? Eliza, he married an Eliza. A little, yeah, there's a little poet, right. poeticness to it. So it gets better. Who was the lawyer who handled the divorce papers for Eliza? Uh, it's got to be one of Alexander's kids. Alexander Hamilton Jr. <laughs> was it really a junior? Because that's amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was Alexander Hamilton Jr. He became a lawyer. He followed in his father's, steps, his father's footsteps and was able to serve divorce papers to the man who killed his dad. That's got to be weird. And that, my listeners, is the story, the true story of Alexander Hamilton. That, you know, what's, what's great about Alexander Hamilton is, uh, you know, the, the resurgent of how important he actually was, yeah. you know, now, right, through Lin-Manuel Miranda. But then before that, it was like 94, there was like the first Got Milk commercial. Yep. And it was like the guy had a, ate a spoonful of peanut butter. He had to answer a radio thing like, who shot Alexander Hamilton? Yeah. He was and working like, at the Smithsonian, yeah. Yeah, and he just couldn't say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was kind of the last reference to Alexander yeah. Hamilton. Like most That's people what people even, knew him from. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. they didn't even realize he was the founding father on the $10 bill. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, they didn't know what, yeah, they didn't recognize that he was the founding father. Didn't know that... He was killed by a sitting vice president. You know, like it's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a completely insane story. And it's, it's really great to see it resurfacing and actually getting the, the notoriety and respect that somebody like Alexander Hamilton really deserves. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I said, you know, growing up like a history buff, like it was always like such a cool story. And I'm glad that he is getting sort of that spotlight and people are seeing what's going on and, how he affected today's, you know, kind of country, you know, the ideas he had and the things he fought for are things that we're still, unfortunately, still kind of fighting for. But, you know, he was very progressive and really wanted to do better. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, excellent coverage. And then, oh, just one more thing on Thank the you. play that was uh, one of those, like, little nods, how, how you're mentioning Chris Jackson kind of looks down in shame when they talk about slavery. Uh-huh. So at the very end of the show, when Eliza looks out over the audience in the play, it's uh, Philippa Sue, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she just kind of looks around and then screams. Have you heard the fan theory on that? I ha- Yeah, the one where they're saying that they think it's her, like her character, Eliza, seeing the, the, the kind of breaking the fourth wall and seeing the audience and seeing that, you know, they did see the story and, you know, they'll live on to see what, you know, what she did. Yeah, I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) No, I thought that was a very beautiful touching moment because now all of a sudden, all of these lineages, all these families are kind of resurrected. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, man. Awesome job. That was a great, uh, great topic. Thank you. So we're going to move on to our next subject, which we're calling Banter with the Beardsleys. Uh, with that, what we're going to do is we're going to look to you guys for a random conversation to talk about. Neither one of us will really have anything prepared. Um, whoever gets, whoever pretty much chooses this one, they'll have a rough idea, but nothing set in stone, no research, nothing like that. So for today, since we're a brand new little baby show, we don't don't really have the draw that we need to make this a full fun thing. So we're going to the interwebs and a random conversation generator, which I think 
is it's actually going to be kind of a fun one. So <laughs> I found two. Uh, which one would you like? Would you like number one or number two? Um, considering I just had a lot of cheese, let's go with number two. I thought you might pick number two. Mm-hmm. Number two. If you could have any superpower, oh, what would it be? Oh man, that's really tough. I feel like that's something everyone talks about and everyone wants to think about and like, I mean, it always comes down to two. It, it comes down to flight and invisibility. Exactly. I was just going to say, yeah, either <laughs> want to be, be able to fly or be invisible. That's what it always boils down to. But what if you can't pick those? What if those are taken by everybody okay. else? So we take those out? Yeah. Um, that's a good, I don't know. Um, it's gotta be, is it like a physical superpower, right? Or like something that's tangible, like not like just have thousands of dollars and be like Batman. My superpower is to be rich. <laughs> I mean, although that's technically genetic, I don't think <laughs> I don't think that one counts. Okay, um, I will go with. Fuck, man, that's hard. It's a good one because the only one that's popping my head is to be really strong. But like, I feel like I'm already kind of strong, and like super strength <laughs> doesn't really like unless I'm going to be pulling cars off of people. Which who knows if the apocalypse comes, maybe we'll need that. I mean, um, yeah, you could start your own moving company. Yeah, Tyler Moving Company Incorporated. <laughs> Um, can I go with time travel? Is that a superpower? Can I have time travel? Can you list a character who has that? Uh, Doc Brown from <laughs> Back to the Future. Well, technically, it's the DeLorean. Okay, whatever. He created the DeLorean. <laughs> he um, didn't create the DeLorean. <laughs> okay, yeah, DeLorean created the DeLorean. He created the time machine inside of the DeLorean. It was a flux capacitor. Yeah, everybody knows. <laughs> Um, okay, fine. Since that's not a superpower, I'm pretty sure Batman or Superman spun around the world in reverse time, but whatever. <laughs> um, I saw that movie. I saw it. Christopher Reeves did it. Best um, Superman, by the way. I don't care. Henry Cavill's great. Don't get me wrong. But I was Christopher like, I Reeve. fucking love Henry Cavill. He's great. I'm not knocking him, but like Christopher Reeve is Superman. Uh, maybe. Like Michael Keaton is Batman. I don't know. Val Kilmer played a really good Batman. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I couldn't get to that with a straight face. I love Val Kilmer. I'm sorry, but yeah, I could. He played a great Bruce Wayne, but he was a terrible Batman. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's George Clooney, who's just dreamy. Oh, oh, I love George. Oh, George. <laughs> this has been the George Clooney corner of the podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna go with strength because I can't think of anything else. I just want to be really strong and just like walk around like flex on them hoes. <laughs> but i mean i don't think you get buff i think you just get strength that's fine i don't care All if right. i can lift a car off a woman she's gonna be impressed she'll probably be dead if the car's on top of her but still all right minor minor that's details fair. details uh, <laughs> i think i would probably have to go I, I i don't know where where it is on the superpower spectrum but i'd go full dr manhattan you want to walk around with a giant penis hanging around covered in blue yeah Oh, okay, that works. <laughs> no, I oh, just time out. Fuck that. Doctor Strange can time travel. Okay, Doctor I, Strange time travel fair. I call fair. I call time travel. I mean, it's technically not time travel. He's jumping timelines, but it's okay. Whatever. <laughs> if I can go back and kill Hitler, that's all I want. Okay, fair, fair. But then there's a, that's a whole nother. I know. Whole we're not, yeah, that's a whole nother <laughs> subject. Yeah, I know. Well, that's episode like seven. Yeah. Uh, I okay, okay. So I won't go with Doctor Manhattan because he's just kind of super everything. Yeah. And there's not like an, an exact power, but um, hmm. I would go with teleportation. That's good. I like that. Yeah, I'm like very antisocial and, and uh, anti-walking. Moving. And a- very anti-walking. <laughs> that's why God created cars so we don't have to. I'm pretty sure that was Henry Ford, but whatever. Uh, same guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. I wasn't around. It could have been. <laughs> you weren't there. <laughs> but yeah, so like if I'm ever in a situation where I'm just like, I'm, there's just too many people, I'm over this, I can just go home. Oh, that's fair. And, and I kind of like that. And then flip and so, side, like oh, I would say like, you know, I'm a big Disney guy. I love going to Disneyland, mm. but it's like an hour. And oh no, you have to drive a whole hour. I have to drive three hours, asshole. Well, that's your fault. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I would go with teleportation just to make traveling easier. Um, that would be nice. Yeah, I love, like, I've always wanted to go to Ireland. I could just go mm-hmm. to Ireland and then, you know, drink a Guinness and then come home. Yeah, have a pint and come home, call it a day. Yeah, get some, like, authentic fish and chips and then I'm, I'm solid. 
Nice. Yeah. So like, instead of like getting mad and taking your ball and going home, like I'm taking my body and going home <laughs> Boop. or whatever sound you would make when you teleport. I don't know what sound teleportation makes. I don't know how it works. <laughs> I was trying to think of Star Trek when they yeah. beam up. <laughs> oh yeah. It just kind of makes that like sound. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think I'm going teleportation, which is kind of like invisibility because you get all the Innocent, same perks, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like you could just be in a bank vault and then vanish. So uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna say that teleportation is the underrated uh, superpower you can get, and I think it's one of the best. I'm sticking with it. All, All right. right. So now I want to hear about this. Uh, what was it? Something that happened in American history? It's a it's a very it's an event that occurred in American history. Mine's not going to be as long or as in depth as yours, just because of the subject matter. Uh, the criteria and the federal, <laughs> federal government <laughs> restrictions on the law. <laughs> There's a uh, not a lot available, and we'll get into uh, why in a second. All right. So I'm excited. Uh, <laughs> this one, it's it's one of those things that I just I, I learned about it years ago, and I can never forget it. And mm. this is my chance to mouth vomit it on other people. Nice. It also has to do with one of my phobias. So in full disclosure, I think it's uh, Tyler, you know, I have a big one, which is spiders. Yep. And this has nothing to do with the great American spider invasion of 1846. Okay. Isn't real. Thank God. <laughs> I was like, that doesn't sound real. <laughs> uh, I'm also afraid of power outages and I don't know why. I think it's because uh, like whenever you, I've watched a lot of horror movies, I think we've probably watched all of them. Oh yeah, definitely. Like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whenever something bad happens, the power goes out. Yep. And so I think it just carried over to my real life. And now I get <laughs> a little nervous when the lights go out. All right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. And then the last thing is uh, UFOs. Uh-huh. Uh, for whatever reason, the idea of being uh, abducted by an alien just terrifies the hell out of me. Uh, and granted, it's probably not like a thing that happens all that often, but the possibility of it is what freaks me out. You're just saying you don't want to be probed? I'm I'm down with the probing, but just ask me. All right. So we have the ground rules for your phobias. Which okay. of your three phobias does this cover? So we're going to get into uh, aliens. Ooh, aliens. So uh, the one thing most of us have probably heard about is the Roswell incident. And not Roswell like the show, Roswell like what the show was i think based on i've actually never seen roswell same i've never seen either i know of roswell and the supposed alien landing or crash whatever was in new mexico back in the 50s exactly it was actually on july 8th 1947 all right uh, and it started in the newspaper it was the roswell daily record they published on its front page in giant uh, big block letters raaf captures flying saucer on the ranch in roswell region this is going to lead into my topic so i think it's important that we kind of cover what happened in 1947 because we are going to use your superpower and we're going to time travel just Yay-o. a little bit. Sweet. See how tight it all in? <laughs> Very proud. There's uh, underneath the headline, it says the intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into possession of a flying saucer. So that is the United States government confirming with the press that they actually possessed a flying saucer they that got was got something. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And this is on, again, July 8th. Uh, Army Major uh, J.A. Marcel, who was an intelligence officer, he said the disc was recovered on a ranch in the Roswell vicinity after an unidentified rancher had notified Sheriff Geo Wilcox, because that is the ultimate old-timey name, <laughs> <laughs> that he had found the instrument on his premises. Major Marcel, in a detail from his department, went to the ranch and recovered the disc, it was stated, in the newspaper. Wow, okay. After the intelligence officer had inspected the instrument, it was flown to higher headquarters. Now, that's just the basis of what happened at Roswell. This is where it gets kind of fun. The article continues. Mr. and Mrs. Dan Wilmot, again, great old-timey name, (laughs) apparently were the only persons in Roswell who seen what they thought was a flying disc. They were sitting on the porch at 105 South Penn last Wednesday night, which is a a small little farm community Mm -hmm. outside of Roswell. Uh, Wednesday night at about 10 o'clock when a large glowing object zoomed out of the sky from the southeast, going northwesterly, directed at a high rate of speed. Wilmot called Mrs. Wilmot's attention to it and both ran down into the yard to watch. 
It was a insight less than a minute, perhaps 40 to 50 seconds, Wilmot estimated. Wilmot said that it appeared to him to be about 1,500 feet high and going fast. How the hell did he figure that? How do you measure 1,500 feet? Because his name is Mr. Wilmot. <laughs> he sounds like a porch. science teacher. Okay, <laughs> yeah. perfect. Sorry, continue. I mean, it's just one of those things you can only imagine somebody sitting on a porch at 10 o'clock at night drinking lemonade would say. <laughs> That's true, yeah. And it technically, it probably was. I mean, it's mid-July, early July in New Mexico. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. New yeah. Mexico. In New Mexico, yeah, it's hot as balls. Yeah, and there's nothing else to do but to sit on the porch and drink lemonade. Wilmot said it appeared to be about 1,500 feet high and going fast. He estimated between four and 500 miles per hour, which is really strange considering in 1947, nothing really went that yeah. fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that's a weird speed to understand like the relativeness a, of it. Yeah, to get a concept of. I mean, I think they had like a fighter jet and I don't know if it hit four to 500 miles per hour. In appearance, it looked oval in shape like two inverted saucers, kind of like if you're going to make a little clamshell with two little saucer plates. Right. Uh, the entire body glowed as though it light were shine, shining through it from the inside. Though not, though not like it would inside. That was something he very much wanted to clarify. Uh, I think he was referring to the fact that the, the light wasn't coming from the bottom. It was just kind of emanating light through the body of this aircraft. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like it wasn't beaming down light. It was just light in the aircraft. Yeah, it was like kind of like the light was going through the particles of the craft. Got it. Okay. And this is from the sheriff of Roswell. Wilmot, who is one of the most respected and reliable citizens in town, kept hmm. the story to himself, hoping that someone else would come out and tell about having seen this, but finally decided today that he would go ahead and talk about it. Damn. So he's a reliable source. It's a strange freak thing. And I think just by the details, he just, I think he overcompensated with the description just because he's trying to convey what he saw. Yeah. Like the overall, like the strangeness of it was like, this is so crazy. Like I can't even comprehend. And so here's where it gets fun. Uh, the very next day, July 9th, 1947. So on July 8th, the government and the newspaper went ahead and published an article saying how we have a flying saucer. Yeah. Right. So on July 9th, 1947, the government was all over the scene. They released a new article saying it was just a weather balloon with a bunch of test equipment on it. <laughs> of course. Which led me to two things. One, that's complete BS. There are way too many people who've come out since the incident from the government that have had firsthand accounts, which we're not going to get into right now because that's, that's not the topic here. Yeah. Uh, number two, the government literally uh, in the last um, about a month ago and again this week, the government just came out and said, we've encountered off-world vehicles not yep. made on this earth. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> if the government in 2020 is saying that, oh yeah, UFOs totally legit, why wouldn't they have been legit in 1947? Because there wasn't a pandemic and the universe trying to kill us in the year 2020. Exactly. So they're prepping us for Armageddon. Exactly. <laughs> so now that we know that the government has been keeping UFOs secret, let's hop off our... I actually want to change this now because in my script, I say let's hop in our off-world vehicle not made on this earth. <laughs> to let's use our new superpower of time travel. Nice. So let's tied it. it in. Back. We're back. Uh-huh. Uh, and let's go back to 1897. This one is, is a fun one. So on April 19th, 1897, an article in the Dallas Morning News described a UFO crash. The UFO is said to have hit a windmill on the property of a, <laughs> a judge, right? Again, credible witness uh -huh. of Judge J.S. Proctor two days earlier at around 6 a.m. Central Time, resulting in its crash. The pilot, who is reported to be, and I quote, not of this world, and a Martian. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> according to a reported Army Signal Service officer named T.J. Weems from nearby Fort Worth. So this uh, Martian creature did not survive the crash and was buried with Christian rites by a traveling pastor named William Russell Tabor at a nearby Aurora <laughs> Cemetery. What? Yes. <laughs> so there's so, some pastor driving by like, oh, this alien that we've never seen needs to get buried uh, yeah i think so i so all right uh, what i've gathered is uh back in that time frame uh it was you know not a lot happening anywhere so mm. a lot of preachers would go around town to town and either preach and because they were genuine you know preachers or they would preach and try and sell snake oil essentially oh uh, yes 
So this guy just happened to be driving in town. <laughs> the cemetery at Aurora Cemetery contains a historical Texas commission marking the moment that this uh, alien was buried. Now, you might say, well, what happened with the UFO? If it hit the windmill and crashed, it's got to be somewhere, right? Yeah. Reportedly, wreckage from the crash was dumped into a nearby well located under the damaged windmill while some ended up with the alien in the grave. Hmm. Adding to the mystery was the story of Mr. Brawley Oates, which is also a fantastic <laughs> old-timey name. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so Mr. Brawley Oates, who had a big flappy mustache, I can't confirm that, but he has to. It's he like a birthright. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, he purchased Judge Proctor's property around 1935. Oates cleaned out the debris from the well in order to use it as a water source, but later developed an extreme severe case of arthritis, which he claimed to be the result of contaminated water from the wreckage dumped into the well. That would do it. Either that or you get some sort of superpower. Yeah, maybe he's the time traveler. <gasps> Boom. As a result, Oates sealed up the well with a concrete <laughs> slab and nice. placed an outbuilding on top of the slab. Okay. So he sealed everything up. Now, this sounds too good to be true, right? Yes. I completely agree. And so did Etta Pegs. I'm going to say that name wrong, but I'm just going to call her Etta Pegs. Pegs? In, like she pegs? Like you want to get pegged? Like almost like Pegasus. It's P-E-G-U-E-S. Etta Pegs. Oh, Okay. In 1980, Time Magazine did an interview with Etta. And she, at that time, she was 86 years old and a, a resident from Aurora who claimed that Hayden had fabricated the entire story, stating that Hayden wrote it as a joke and to bring interest <laughs> into Aurora. So it was all PR. Yeah. Uh, she says, and I quote, the railroad bypassed us and the town was dying. Pegs further claimed that Judge Proctor never actually even operated a windmill on his property. <laughs> a statement later disputed an episode of UFO Hunters on the History Network, which found what they claimed to be the base of a wooden water pump tower constructed around the well. So the hoax, in fact, was a hoax of its own. Interesting. It was hoaxception. It, it was like five layers of hoax. Interesting. Okay. So MUFON, which uh, if you don't know, it's the Mutual UFO Network, which uh -huh. is a worldwide now, and mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting, but we'll get into that one later as well. They uncovered two new eyewitnesses to the crash. Mary Evans, who was 15 at the time, told of how her parents went to the crash site. They forbade her from going and the discovery of the alien body. Whoa, Charlie okay. Stevens, who was 10 years old at the time, he saw the airship trailing sm uh, smoke as it headed north towards Aurora. He wanted to see what happened, but his father made him finish his chores because, again, it's, you know, New Mexico in 1947 yeah, or 1897. Was, yeah, I thought they were in Texas. You're right. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Aurora, Texas. Perfect. You're absolutely right. So what you have to do your chores because Pa said do your chores oh, before yeah. you go see the alien body. Or you get whooped. You get the lashings. <laughs> go cut me a switch. <laughs> so he told how his father went down the next day and saw wreckage from the crash. Okay. Mufon then investigated the Aurora Cemetery and uncovered a grave marker that appeared to show a flying saucer of some sort, <laughs> as well as readings from its metal detector. Oh, okay. Now this is weird, right? So if, uh, if, hypothetically there's something in that grave you would want it to uh, to be discovered right you want to dig this thing up oh yeah definitely so mufon asked for permission to exhume the site but the cemetery association declined permission after the mm. mufon investigation the marker mysteriously disappeared from the cemetery and a three-inch pipe was placed into the ground what the fuck for the sole purpose of MUFON's uh, metal detectors no longer picking up a proper signal. MUFON's report eventually stated that the evidence was inconclusive but did not rule out the possibility of a hoax. The episode featured an uh, interview with Mayor Brammer who discussed the town's tragic history. And it goes on to talk about how a lot of people ended up getting radiation poisoning from the town's water supply, the natural well that was underneath Ooh, the okay. town. okay. Yeah. And that's essentially where it all ends. The last full report on this was done in 1994 for a documentary on the History Channel, but it's just very interesting to know that although Roswell happened in 1947, it was not the first time a UFO was widely publicized and reported on in the United States. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. So is it all, uh, all a hoax? I don't know. Uh, I, honestly, I would think if something happened in a small town in the late 1800s, you're going to put it in the paper. Yeah. Like, you're not just going to make up fake stuff because then they're going to go after the mayor for being crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, the sheriff is going to get in trouble. It's it just it, politically hoaxing that in 1897 would not be a good call. Yeah, definitely. 
so yeah, that's my topic. It didn't have a lot to go off of, uh, strictly for the fact that it was a very long time ago. And back then they look, kind of looked down on UFO stories just as much as they do today. Oh yeah. But it's just very interesting that, uh, all of this has happened before and it'll happen again. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, especially, I don't know. I feel like people from that time period, um, not that they're more trustworthy because, you know, like you're saying, there's people that sell snake oil and people are going to have some, you know, they're going to be full of shit wherever you go. But I don't know. I just feel like that time, like they had, there's so much more stuff to do. They had to like work their land and they had to do all this stuff to make a living that why would they spend this much time to do a hoax? And, you know, yeah, it's going to bring traffic into like the city, but what if it doesn't work? Like he spent a lot of time and basically just like damned his family and everything for trying to create this hoax. Like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I want to believe the truth you know, is out there <laughs> yeah it's like i just don't i feel like yeah like why would you go through that much effort to fake something like that you know exactly you're gonna you know ruin your political career you're gonna ruin your family yeah it's just it wouldn't be worth it back then yeah you had too much at stake like you were like the sole breadwinner like literally you know like making food and you know growing your supplies and why would you waste that time exactly especially when he shut down his well yeah exactly yeah like your water source like no <laughs> like, like that's not okay you, yeah you need that water yeah so uh yeah so that's my story and uh nice. i, I like liked it. it it was one thing that i i learned that years ago and i've always tried to find more information mm -hmm. and sadly it there just isn't it's the government i tell you man that's what it is until now for whatever reason someone get agent Mulder on the phone do, 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 do. i can't say that because of copyright strike <laughs> that's all we get <laughs> so yeah uh that was our our episode yeah i hope you anyone that's listening to this i hope you're listening to this please listen to this uh if you're listening i hope you enjoyed it uh let us know how we did uh if you have feedback comments questions uh if you have a you know if you have something like that yourself you've seen the ufo you've heard the story or you have critiques on alexander hamilton or you know somehow you know something that's related to hamilton let us know. Shoot us a, a message and we can talk about it on the show. Absolutely. And, you know, for all your questions, comments, concerns, and particularly grievances, you can find us at the Hamburglar. Uh, and <laughs> for all the good stuff, you can uh, message me at the Christopher Alton. Yes, I will gladly send all your hate mail <laughs> into the junk folder. But no, I mean, probably in the next day or two, I'm going to try to get some social media up for us. So by the next time you hear us, hopefully we will have some information where you can actually find us. And then you can send good, bad, negative, you know, whatever you want to send us. You can find a social media outlet to send it to and not hopefully spam us with direct messages. I love spam messages because it makes me feel important. So right. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> you can send me messages. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for listening. Beard strong, my friends. That's it, folks. We will talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.